Welcome to Emerging Europe Talks, a series of discussions offering insight and intelligence designed to help entrepreneurs, investors, governments and all knowledge seekers navigate emerging Europe. The talks focus on innovation and technology, sustainable social and economic growth and help the right people identify the right opportunities and trends. Today, Emerging Europe Talks, International Relations, Emerging Europe and the United States. I am Andrew Robel, your host, and I am joined by Tyson Barker, Deputy Executive Director and Fellow at Aspen Institute, Germany. His earlier posts include a position as Senior Advisor to the Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs at the U.S. State Department. Tyson, welcome to Emerging Europe Talks. Thank you. Good to be here. So on August 15th, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, signed a new defense agreement with Poland that will see American troops redeployed from Germany. This means that from now on, there will be around five and a half thousand American soldiers in, in Poland. What's your take on that? Well, I mean, clearly this is kind of a, a, a part of the story of the repositioning of troops from Germany. Um, uh, the United States announced a drawdown in July of around 12,000 troops out of Germany, moving UCOM uh, to, to Belgium, moving some assets to, to Italy. AFRICOM will be moved as well. Um, and Poland is, if there is a beneficiary from this, Poland is it. Um, these 1,000 troops are rotational. There will be um, a, um, the external base of the uh, V Corps command of the army will be located in, in Poland now. They'll be doing some new training centers in uh, Drosko and Pomorski. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that this is still within the framework of what we've already seen. This is not a qualitative change from uh, the defense posture in Poland. So it's not a huge win as the current uh, government in Poland is, is actually uh, suggesting. It's an optical win, win, and it's clearly a, um, it's operationalizing a promise that was made last summer, but is this the kind of permanent basing with permanent infrastructure that the Polish government has been looking for? No, it's not. Okay. And uh, how do you see the relations between Poland and, and sort of broadly uh, emerging Europe and the United States over the last four years under, uh, you know, under the uh, Trump administration? We saw President uh, Andrzej Duda visit, uh, you know, visit Washington a few days before the election, uh, the presidential election in Poland at the end of June. And he was the he was actually the first one, the first head of state to visit Trump during the, the you know, pandemic. Yeah, I mean, the, the relationship is, is rather close. I mean, the, the Polish government and the Trump administration have a strong, I would say, ideological affinity. Um, there's a lot of aligned interests um, in things like energy security related to Nord Stream 2. Obviously, Poland is meeting the 2% goal set out at Wales for, for NATO defense spending. Um, when you think about things like um, China, there has been a greater alignment, although, you know, Poland is becoming more hawkish when it comes to China, and then kind of broadly how uh, uh, the Trump administration and the Duda presidency and the government more broadly see the world is in greater alignment. And one can see that, of course, in the speech that uh, President Trump gave in uh, Warsaw three years ago. Uh, I think it was his only major speech uh, in Europe, uh, kind of outlining how he saw the transatlantic relationship 
in his presidency. So I think there's a lot of closeness. Um, when you think more broadly, uh, the, uh, the relationship with emerging Europe is mixed. Um, and of course, that's reflective of the fact that there are a lot of different types of governments uh, throughout uh, uh, Central and Eastern Europe with a lot of different uh, strategic interests. Um, if you look at the, the uh, trip that uh, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, just made to the region, I think broadly you would say it was a rather productive and successful visit, well teed up, well prepared, um, that checked a lot of boxes on questions around energy security, around 5G infrastructure, and around defense um, that were high on the administration's priority list. So uh, when, when it comes to security and defense, uh, you know, we, we recently had a new country joining the, the you know, the, the pact, I mean, NATO. What does that mean uh, for, um, you know, U.S. emerging Europe relations? Yeah, I mean, the fact that North Macedonia is now a member of NATO is the fulfillment of a promise uh, that the United States and the other NATO members have made to North Macedonia going back decades. Uh, and is really a great moment for the Alliance uh, welcoming um, this new member. Um, that's, of course, what uh, the United States strategically traditionally has wanted to see, is to fill in the map uh, of a return to, to Europe, a return to the Euro-Atlantic space of countries in the Balkans, for example, um, obviously making their own sovereign decisions about how they want to orient themselves strategically. Um, but of course, the door is open for all of these countries. Um, and some of them have made it their wish to, to become uh, NATO members. North Macedonia is one of them. And it put in a lot of hard work, uh, made a lot of sacrifices to make that possible, and was finally um, uh, got what it deserved, which is, is NATO membership for NATO membership. But you remember the, you know, the, the comment that uh, President Trump made about Montenegro, which also recently joined the, uh, you know, the pact. Right. No, I mean, and, and there have been similar comments, uh, frankly, um, very impolitic comments that are not in keeping with the spirit of the Washington Treaty uh, of NATO by other politicians, including Newt Gingrich, who said, for example, that, the, that Tallinn is a suburb of St. Petersburg, and why would the United States defend that, but that is not in keeping these. That is not in keeping with the, the the basis of the alliance, which is first and foremost collective defense. Um, Trump himself, you know, as I said, Pompeo's visit quite productive, but uh, Trump is very ambivalent to NATO, and uh, that is one of the reasons why the polls, perhaps rightfully have been looking to hedge with a bilateralization of the defense relationship with the United States. Um, that may or may not work for Poland, but that certainly won't work for a lot of other states, including the Balts, including other V4 states, um, who really do rely on the collective architecture of NATO for their defense. So the more that Trump see, uh, sows doubt in uh, the United States' uh, true commitment to upholding Article 5, the worse the entire alliance is. Mm -hmm. Next week, Emerging Europe is hosting an online conference called Emerging Europe and the United States, you know, towards 2030, so the next decade. How do you see U.S. interests in, in the region, in Emerging Europe in the next uh, 10 years? And what can, the win, uh, you know, can, what can the region win here? Well, uh, let's, let's think about some of the different areas. I mean, there are three big, broad categories that the United States needs to be invested in Emerging Europe. 
There's uh, the prosperity of the region, its economic resilience. Um, there's the security of the region, that it remains a, a secure, sovereign space where, uh, you know, the people of these countries have the right to determine which way their governments and countries want to go. And the third is the democracies of the region. Are they robust, deeply embedded democracies with independent institutions? And all three, frankly, are our live questions right now. Uh, we have a situation on the economic side where there's real pressure on supply chains uh, to repatriate supply chains. The region is extremely dependent on economies like Germany in the West and the United States for its manufacturing. They plug into that broader system. So repatriating supply chains might not be in the interest of the region. And that's a threat uh, to the transatlantic, Euro-Atlantic interests. Uh, COVID has, has hit the region in a massive way. Um, the United States wants to make sure that there's resilience in how the European Union, uh, first and foremost, is guaranteeing that uh, these countries are going to have uh, sound, solvent uh, public budgets. Um, and then on the security side, obviously the Russia threat is very acute and the China threat is a chronic threat. Uh, they have different characteristics characteristics, but making sure that the Euro-Atlantic space is all on the same page is going to be key. And the final on democracy, obviously in places like Poland and Hungary, um, clearly in Belarus, uh, in Ukraine, in other places, we have worrying signs about the, um, the, uh, the status of independent institutions, media, uh, judiciary, uh, civil society, as well as questions around corruption, relationships between corrupt oligarchs spanning across borders, transnational interests that do not serve people in the region. Um, and for example, Joe Biden, the Democratic candidate for presidency, who I know we're gonna talk about a little bit more in more detail later, um, has said that one of his first uh, obje obje objectives in office will be to hold a summit of democracies where he is going to put also for the United States, some very critical questions, some very deep soul searching as to what it means to be a democracy and what are the advantages that democracies provide each other and how can they make sure that countries that are backsliding are not enjoying those advantages without actually staying true to democracy's principles. This was the first part of Emerging Europe Talks International Relations with Tyson Barker. In part two, we will take a deeper dive in the current social, political and economic situation in the United States and the upcoming presidential election. Stay with us. This was Emerging Europe Talks, International Relations, Emerging Europe and the United States. I spoke with Tyson Barker, Deputy Executive Director at Aspen Institute, Germany. Thanks, Tyson. Welcome back. So let's talk about the US now. You already mentioned Joe Biden. The presidential election is just a few months away. Do you see Mr. Trump being reelected or a new Oval Office resident replacing him? Um, I would say it's too soon to tell. There are current, uh, you know, uh, let's say, um, betting pools of, that game out probabilities of whether or not he'll be reelected. And they are, they are tipping his opponent, Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden currently has around a 12% lead in national polls and leads more narrowly in all the swing state polls for the key swing states. Um, but anything could happen. Um, we, you know, there can be all sorts of surprises between now and November. There are also major questions about around the election infrastructure, because this is clearly an election we're going to be having in the COVID era. 
And that's going to change the way people turnout takes place. So, for example, in 2018, uh, voters in Pennsylvania, a key swing state, availed themselves of mail-in voting in 5% of cases. So 5% of voters used mail-in voting. The intent for mail-in voting in Pennsylvania this time is 50%. So that's a huge jump. That means that there needs to be more people to just process mail-in ballots. Uh, and the infrastructure, frankly, across the United States isn't there. So that's another element of uncertainty with these elections. So there's the question of who will win, by what margin, and to what degree will the legitimacy of this election be, uh, be certified by all parties participating. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned COVID, for example. So let's look at the internal situation in the U.S. right now. Uh, so there's COVID. There is, there's also, you know, uh, the, the whole uh, Black Lives Matter issue. Uh, how, how, you know, will they be resolved in your opinion? Well, I mean, there's COVID, there's the Black uh, Lives Matter and uh, George Floyd. Yeah. Uh, inequalities that have, have arisen. And then there's a third, which is which every country is experiencing globally, which is the hit that economies have taken. You know, the United States now has over 10% unemployment. The furlough program that was in place for the United States and the unemployment payment system is in jeopardy right now due to gridlock in Congress. There has been a lot of power by virtue of the fact that DC, Washington has abdicated its role in providing resilience in testing, in, in infrastructure for, uh, for development of a vaccine, for providing for hospitals, uh, for giving uh, aid to state budgets to make sure that they have hospitals that are well-staffed and paid for, all these things, and an education system that remains resilient. Washington has kind of abdicated its responsibility. And because of that, states have kind of stepped in to fill that gap, but those states all have massive budget shortfalls that are going to cause, frankly, could cause a, a, a solvency crisis in states if it's not helped by the government. So there's a lot of interwoven crises on top of each other. The one thing you can say is everybody in the United States is politicized right now. Um, it is a deeply polarized population. Um, there was a time where you would say that, you know, a lot the majority of Americans were non-voters, essentially, or, or very, were not interested in politics. That's not the case now. Even something like wearing a mask or remaining socially distanced, these are identity politics in the United States. And that is not good for uh, U.S. resilience in the face of this crisis. You know, if we look uh, further, you know, sort of globally, uh, there are issues related to obviously China, there's North Korea as well. How do you see that affecting, you know, the situation in the United States uh, in the next, say, four years? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the Trump administration and Trump campaign has been, uh, I would say, somewhat erratic in its position on China. On the one hand, you have, um, and, and same goes for North Korea. Uh, you have the president himself trying to ingratiate himself to, to the leaders of these countries, um, trying to do them favors, kind of hoping for personal favors in return. Um, and on the other hand, you have some rather hawkish stances, uh, particularly with regard to China. You have obviously the campaign that Mike Pompeo just did in Central Europe on Huawei, trying to make sure that they're banned from uh, core 5G infrastructure procurement uh, in Europe. 
Um, you have bans on Huawei and ZTE in the United States. You have this executive order on TikTok and WeChat. You have uh, heavy criticism of the situation in Hong Kong and, and Xinjiang. You have the stalled trade talks in phase one, which uh, have basically come to nothing since, since January. Uh, and then you have the expulsion of diplomats in, uh, from Houston. And the question is, to what extent is this part of a China strategy? And to what extent is this politics? And I think that the one area or one of the areas where you have broad bipartisan consensus, Democrats and Republicans, is that the United States is moving into a phase of great power rivalry with China. Mm. And that great power rivalry is not just about different countries, it's about different worldviews. Um, what the Trump administration is trying to do is say, actually, we are the ones who own that position. And Biden is much more weak, much more traditionalist, came from the camp that thought that China could be integrated into the global, uh, the international system as a responsible stakeholder, wanted China in the WTO, etc. And that Trump has, is trying to correct those mistakes. Uh, that is the kind of political narrative that's playing out right now. But it doesn't matter who wins, Trump or, or Biden, the position towards China is going to be rather hawkish. And, uh, and there are going to be a lot of questions here in Europe as to how it's going to position itself vis-a-vis -vis that hawkish relationship. Mm -hmm. So finally, the, the UK, you know, the, the, we are no longer part of the European Union. And what does that mean, you know, for, uh, for US sort of uh, European relations and maybe UK relations? Right. I mean, the UK, I, despite Trump's kind of tweets saying that it's great that the UK has reclaimed its sovereignty or whatever, it is a massive blow to the American position to, to not have the UK in the European Union. Because let's be honest, the UK is a kindred voice on the world stage. And having that kindred voice in the European Union means a lot when you're talking about things like trade policy, uh, mm. financial services regulation, uh, data protection, all these things. Um, that's where the US needs the UK to be a strong voice in Europe. So that's all been hurt. Uh, the question is, in this transition period, whether or not the UK can successfully Uh, navigate to a new relationship with the European Union and what that means for a US-UK free trade agreement. Um, we are, the United States, both sides of the aisle are very interested in, in, a, 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 in a trade agreement with the UK, but they're going to do it on very hard-nosed economic terms defined by what makes sense for American citizens. And that means concessions on market access for agriculture, that means uh, financial services changes, Uh, that means uh, all sorts of uh, procurement access, perhaps. And of course, the UK being outside the European Union has less leverage because it is a smaller market. Um, so there are big questions as to how much the UK is really willing to concede, being that it is, frankly, although a very important prosperous power, a mid-sized power with a mid-sized economy. So my final question regarding, uh, you know, the Oval Office in January uh, 2021, uh, what does that mean? I mean, we, we might still have have Joe Biden there. What does that mean, each of the two scenarios for emerging Europe? Well, let me start with the, the Trump scenario. Um, so when, when Trump was uh, impeached in the House uh, because of the situation with, uh, uh, with Ukraine, 
uh, and his calls with Polinsky, etc. Uh, after he was not, he was acquitted by the Senate. He took that as a validation for his approach to governance, and he felt much less bound by the rest constitutional restrictions in place. So essentially, he immediately began to uh, fire all the inspectors generals, the independent auditors based at the departments, for example, the Department of State. Um, I think if he were to re win re-election, he would have the same kind of political, he would feel the same sense of political validation. So a lot of the instincts that we see with him, particularly with regard to NATO, but also with regard to places like Russia, he will say, well, I, you know, we put this to the American voter. I am, uh, you know, more Russophilic. I am skeptical of NATO. Um, that went to a vote. The voters decided that they wanted me to continue to be president. And now I'm validated. I have a mandate to pursue that policy. So I think a, a Trump, too, would be a Trump even more unbound by the kind of traditional institutions uh, mm -hmm. that existed, uh, the legacy institutions of the past 70 years. So I think that's just a problem for, <laughs> for emerging Europe. Um, although he might have a special affinity for some countries in the region, bilateralizing that relationship, that security relationship, is going to put them at odds. Uh, the United States is going to extract a lot of concessions and be a less reliable partner. So that's not great. Um, if mm -hmm. Biden were to win, as I mentioned, he wants to put a, a primacy on democracy. Um, and so there are going to be some hard questions for countries like, like Hungary. Um, but at the same time, I think he's a much more known quantity uh, when it comes to his position vis-a-vis -vis the European Union, vis-a-vis -vis NATO. Um, I think you'll see him immediately lift the 232 tariffs. I think you'll see him immediately join the Paris Climate Accords, all these kind of things. And to that extent, I think it'll be easier for emerging Europe to work with him and his administration. This was Emerging Europe Talks, International Relations, Emerging Europe and the United States. I spoke with Tyson Barker, Deputy Executive Director at Aspen Institute, Germany. Thanks, Tyson. Thanks so much. And everyone, thanks for listening. Stay tuned to the next episode of Emerging Europe Talks. Meanwhile, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. This will help me invite guests that you would like to hear from. And finally, check our news and analysis website at emerging-europe.com.